following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Just as we start kind of a disclaimer, because uh, this is Romans chapter 7 is a very uh, debated, highly debated, sometimes very emotionally debated passage of Scripture. Uh, I want to ask for a show of hands, but my guess is if you ever went to Bible college or seminary or were in an intense Bible study that looked at Romans chapter 7, you may have been in an all-out, knockdown, drag-out fight with somebody over this passage. Uh, and commentators are all over the place on what this passage means. And uh, if it's speaking to Christians, if it's speaking to people before they came to Christ, uh, what the what the meaning of it all is. And so let's start with just some basic ground rules to review our hermeneutics, which means how you study the Bible, right? Real important. And one of the problems that we have when we read Scripture is that all of us want Scripture to speak to us and apply to our life, right? Uh, we don't read the Bible because it's a history book and we're just dying to know more about how people lived 3,000 years ago. We want to know how God's truth can guide us today, right? So we read Scripture with an eye to application. I don't know about you, but I'm sure you're probably like me. Uh, I read Scripture and I'm constantly saying, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? What is this telling me to do or change in my life, right? And that's important. You know, James says, be doers of the Word, not hearers only. We don't just read it for its sake of information. We we read it to be life-changing. That's a good thing. But here's the big condition It's really important that when we read the Bible, we actually understand what it means before we apply it. Okay? Important little rule that we oftentimes overmiss. And we're so eager to jump to application. Oftentimes we don't ask the the simple question first, what does the Bible actually mean here? Uh, And then apply that meaning. So today as we look at Romans 7, 7 through 12, it's real important. And, And next week as we look further on that uh, we, we stop first and before we start applying all this great stuff, we just say, okay, what does this really mean? What did it mean, especially to the original audience who read it? And then from that, we will try to glean out some principles of how we can apply that. So we'll take that approach this morning. And uh, to get a little bit of the context real briefly, in chapter 6, 7, 8, Paul is talking about how we can live holy lives. Uh, in the first five chapters, he, he focuses primarily on how we come to right relationship with God through the blood of Christ through the cross, how we, in essence, get saved, get justified. Uh, then he shifts gears a little bit, and he starts focusing on now that you have come to Christ, you now stand in right relationship with God. How do you live that out? And uh, Paul says some very clear and simple things to summarize in Romans 6. He says, he, ta- he talks about sin. And he says that we have died to sin. Uh, we participated with Christ's death in some way. He doesn't really explain. But we, when we come to faith in Christ, we participate with Christ in his death. And in that dying, we died to sin's power. So before Christ, sin held a, a, a power, was Lord, was master over our life. Uh, we come to Christ and that power is no longer there. Now you and your experience may, may think differently. I, I often do. I think, man, sin seems plenty powerful in my life. But the truth is, it's, it, 
Christ's death broke something of its power, and its power over us is not what it was before. Right? Uh, and he says, now you are uh, not free to do whatever you want, but you're now slaves to obedience. Okay, You're no longer a slave to sin, but that doesn't mean we can just do whatever. We are now slaves to obedience. And uh, what he's calling us to, what Christ is calling us to, what Christ has done for us has really made it possible for us to live a life of obedience as we walk with God. Uh, and then in Romans 7, he, he pretty much says the same exact thing, only changes one word. He changes out the word sin, and he plugs in the word law. Okay, And he really says the same thing all over again. He said, you also have died to the law. You are no longer under its power. It is no longer Lord and Master over your life. Uh, and in fact, now you are, he says in, uh, in, in the first part of chapter 7, he says you are now to serve, same similar word to slave, you're to serve in the new way of the Spirit, right? not the old way of the letter of the law. Now at this point, especially if you're a Jew, right, uh, and you've got to think in context of his audience, Rome, a lot of Jewish Christians, a lot of Jewish influence, right? You were real good with the whole die to sin thing, you know, and the power of sin. You were, you were all over that. But all of a sudden, he starts talking about dying to the law and no longer being under the law, no longer being bound to the law, and no longer required to follow the law. Right now, you're about having a, a heart attack, you know. You're, you're just, uh, you go, what in the world is he talking about, right? Because for the Jews, the law was everything. The law was everything, right? The Torah, their whole life, their whole religion, their whole theology revolved around the law. So when Paul starts chucking the law out, you know, you're, you're going into panic mode, right? And, and you would start, you would, if, if, uh, if I was Paul and I was saying this and, and you were the church in Rome, most of you would be thinking, oh man, this guy is a heretic. We've got to take this guy out and burn him at the stake, right? Because he is trashing the law, right? And Paul, being a Jew who came, you know, was at one time a Pharisee, was from that, that cut of cloth, he would have understood, and, and so he interjects uh, the arguments. And he says to them, so is the law sin? May it never be. He says, no way. The law is not sin. Right? Uh, but he's, he holds his ground that the law is not for us in Christ what it was before, right? So let's look real briefly at, uh, at what that means. Uh, and we're not going to look at, at huge detail, but I, I want to just uh, kind of survey real quickly kind of the general meaning of these five verses. Um, first of all, he asserts clearly and definitively that the law is good, okay? It comes from God, it's a good thing. And he says it in two different ways. He says it at the beginning in verse 7. He says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Uh, but if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Okay, so he says the law has a purpose in showing us what sin is. And then in verse 12, he says again, he concludes his argument by saying, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, so he affirms that the law is a good thing. Now, the first question we need to ask is, well, what law is he talking about here? Is he talking about civil law? Is he talking about general moral code? Is he talking about the law of our conscience? What law is he talking about here? Uh, well, to answer that question, we really need to ask, in this passage, uh, Paul uses I. He says, I, I experienced this. 
And the real question we've got to answer first is, who's, who's the I? Right? And scholars, theologians, smart people, way smarter than me, uh, come up with four different options. First option is Paul himself, which would be how I would use the word I. When I say I, I mean me. <laughs> and um, so that would be the obvious one that Paul's talking about himself. Uh, second option could be Adam. And a lot of going way, way back in early church history, they said, well, the I is, is Adam. Uh, and there's some reasons for that. Um, some people say, no, he's talking really about I universally being Israel, right? And that, that what he talks about really could only be true of actually Israel. And then lastly, uh, some people say, oh, it's just everybody. He's using I universally as a representative of mankind, okay? So we'll take a vote. No, we won't. Uh, who, so who's he talking about? Well, without getting into all the very subtle and mind-boggling arguments, um, here, here's, a, here's an answer. <laughs> if it's the right one, it's an answer. Um, probably Paul here means himself. Okay, he is talking about himself. But he's talking about himself not just in general as, as any old human being. He's talking about himself as a person who was a Jew, who lived under the law of Moses, and who experienced the burden and weight of, of living under that law. Okay? So, it, so it's so it's kind of a combination of several things. You know, it is it is Paul speaking of his own personal experience, but he's speaking of his experience as a representative of all Jews. <clears throat> so, some of the things that he experienced would not be things um, you know an average Westerner would experience in our world today. All right. So he's not talking about I generally or I universally as a member of mankind, but as the I who's a member of Israel and who was bound very specifically by the law of Moses, right? So when you ask what the law is, uh, uh, Paul's certainly talking here about the law of Moses, which, by the way, disqualifies Adam because Adam lived a few years before Moses and, uh, Mo you know, Adam didn't have the commandments as Moses did. So it kind of eliminates him. It also eliminates all the Gentiles who also did not have the commandments of Moses. Right? Um, so as we go through this, and, and uh, one of the reasons we are pretty sure it's the law of Moses is that Paul gives an example from the Tenth Commandment. Tenth Commandment, you all know that one, right? <laughs> I didn't. Thou shalt not covet. You've got to have the thou's and the shalt's, okay, or it doesn't work. It's not a commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And he uses that as an example to illustrate his point. Um, so he's talking here about specifically the functional role of the Mosaic Law, right, uh, and his experience of it uh, and what it did in his life personally, but also for the whole nation of Israel. Um, and the reason that's significant is that Israel believed the law was life. If you were to talk to a Jew in, in, in Paul's day, and actually if you were to talk to Orthodox Jews today, and you were to ask them, how do you live? How do you find life? How do you find salvation? They would say without thinking, you keep the law. Right? And if you keep the law, you have eternal life. Right? And that's the battle that Paul's waging here. And he says, no. No, no, no. He says, the law cannot give you the life. The law, in fact, kills you. Death by commandment. Okay? He, says, he says, the law is good, 
but the law is ineffective at giving life. Right? Um, real quickly, uh, talking about why the law is good. Uh, he says the law is holy, right, and good. And we don't have time to really go into that, but um, but just say this: that the law was given by God, and it is a revelation of His character. Right? Uh, so it is good. It's it explains. It highlights what it means for God to be holy. Uh, or even beyond that, uh, it explains what it means for us to come into the presence of a holy God. What it looks like to be fit beings who are vessels as His temple and who are worthy to come in and worship Him. And that's what the law is all about. How, how do I qualify as a worshiper and follower of God, as one who's one of His people? So the law is holy. It, it describes right conduct. And it tells us what is what truly is ultimately good. Right? So in that sense, the law has great value, uh, and it's important. Uh, and also, Paul also says clearly, though, that the law has benefit, and that it reveals our sin. And this, for Paul, is its greatest function and purpose. Not to give life, but to highlight and illustrate what we really are inside. And uh, he gives a long... Um, a lengthy illustration of this. Um, let me let me read through it again. He says this. Uh, this is how it works. He says, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? So I wouldn't have known this. Uh, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead or dormant, inactive. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Um, It's interesting, he uses a word here... um, uh, that sin is a platform. Uh, that, I'm sorry, the law is a platform. He says the law exposes us uh, to our sinfulness. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but, but remember, he's talking here specifically about the law of Moses and its function for that for the people of Israel. Right? So, the, so his first point is simply this. The law is good. Okay, the law is good. But his second point is, is, uh, is critical. And his second point is this. The law is good, but the law cannot make us good. Okay? The law is good, but the law can never produce goodness in us. Right? There's nothing that the law can do to move or make us or even help us be good, be righteous, be holy people. Right? And he describes that by, by this... Uh, this base of operation illustration. And in, in your translation, it may use the word um, opportunity. It's an interesting Greek word, and the word actually would describe a base of op- operation for a military campaign, right? kind of your base camp, your bridgehead, from which you would launch uh, an attack. Right? And he says that uh, sin used law as its platform or its base of operation to attack us. Uh, to, to, to illustrate this, I would, I would put it this way. Um, uh, sin is holding a gun, right? 
the bullets in the gun are our desires. And it's interesting that he uses the 10th commandment, the, the, the commandment not to covet. Do you know what coveting is? It's not a word we use often. And I, I don't, you know, I, 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 I can't say I ever go around saying, man, I sure covet that. I just don't do that, you know. What does it mean? Well, the word literally means uh, to desire something, to have deep longing or desire for something. In fact, the word can be used uh, negatively or positively. It can mean to desire something good. But often, or almost all the time, Paul uses it in a negative sense. And certainly in this idea of coveting, it's a negative sense. To desire something that's off limits to you. Right? So our desire is the bullet. Right? Sin is holding the gun, waiting to pull the trigger. But the gun itself is law. Okay? It's the platform. It's the basis of operation. It's the thing that sin uses to fire the bullets at us. Right? That's kind of the image that Paul is painting here. Um, and, and the idea is, he says, he says desire in itself is, is harmless. Okay, our desires are not necessarily sinful. In fact, he says in verse 8, he says, Apart from the law, sin lies dead or dormant. Uh, before there was law, we had in us desires. Okay? But those desires, until somebody says you can't do that, the desires themselves can't be evil or wrong. Now, there's a sense in which uh, society tells us certain things are wrong, and we kind of get this sense, you know, I think murdering people is probably not a good thing. Uh, and you may desire to kill somebody, but you probably don't because you don't want to go to jail. Uh, but, but what really makes that desire sinful is when somebody says you can't kill them. Right? It's against the law. Uh, and then all of a sudden what it does is it takes that desire that was probably wrong but not not sin and it now makes it evil wicked and sinful right now my desire uh, is intensified because uh, it's a desire to do something that's explicitly wrong it's explicitly against God's will or purpose um, murder may not be the best illustration let's take something more neutral like greed right materialism uh, People living in the world today would think material wealth, possessions, comfort are actually signs of God's blessing. The Jews certainly would have thought that. And uh, I, I wouldn't say it's not, right? But uh, certainly greed is sin, right? And Scripture says clearly, you know, don't be greedy. Don't be stingy. Don't hoard money to yourself, right? So all of a sudden it takes what before was a maybe neutral desire for wealth, for stuff, now all of a sudden there's a command that says, don't be greedy, right? And so if I still long for stuff excessively, if I long for wealth, all of a sudden now I'm longing for something that I know is forbidden, right? Um, and so Paul says that the commandment gives life. But what it really gives life to is sin. So he says, sin was dormant, the law came along, and sin sprang to life. I love that image, okay? Sin sprang to life. And it picked up the gun, and it loaded the bullet called desire, and it aimed at, at me, and it pulled the trigger, right? That's what law does. Um, <clears throat> law intensifies um, desire. It makes our neutral desires explicitly wrong, but what it does above everything else 
is it uh, incites us to defiance and rebellion. Okay. Uh, now let me ask you a simple question. We're going to do a survey. You can't. You don't have to raise your hand on this one, but just think about it. How many of you love it when uh, somebody tells you, "This is what you have to do." You know, I love it when you get an order directive at work that says, "We're not doing quarterly reports anymore. We're doing monthly reports, and you have to send this report in by this date." How many of you just love that? Anybody? How many? Do, you know, I've never heard anybody say, "I'm so excited. We get to do more reports." I was hoping they would do this, right? And, and the fact that it's, when it's delivered with those words, you have to, you must, this is what you will do. What is your instant, automatic, natural response to that? <clears throat> Just get that, right? Stiff-necked. Resistance. Oh, yeah, make me, right? Just make me. Go ahead, make my day, right? Anybody have that experience? Well, I know we're all Christians, you know, we're all baptized with the Holy Spirit, we're all, we all love Jesus, we all love to be told what to do, Right? Paul says, human nature, our flesh, those parts of us that are not sinful explicitly, but are given to weakness because of our desires, right? saved or not, okay, those things become the target or become the bullets that sin uses in conjunction with the gun, law, to kill us. And we all know that experience. I don't care how mature, how long you've been a believer, whatever. We resist, all right? There is something in our nature that just gets fired when people try to tell us what to do, right? Um, that's law, right? And it incites in us a spirit of rebellion and resistance and defiance. Now, of course, in Christ, we, we shouldn't respond that way, right? Uh, we do have to live in a world where there are laws, and um, even though I'll talk a little bit later why I think we need to move away from laws, the reality is we live with laws all around us. And as believers, we need to humbly check that spirit and take a deep breath and uh, with minimal grumbling and complaining, you know, do the stupid report. <laughs> um, but the principle he's talking about here is that uh, the law triggers that. The law incites that. The law stimulates and stirs up defiance and resistance in us. Okay? Therefore, the conclusion of all that is that ultimately the, the, the law brings out the worst in me. Okay? Uh, and, and there's been amazing tests. You can do research. You can, you can come up with all kinds of anecdotes of this. But the truth is that if you tell any kid, don't do that, right? You planted an idea in his head. And whether he does it or not, he's going to want to do it, right? You, you've put desire in him, and the desire is not just for the thing, but the desire becomes now to break the rule, right? And there's an urge, there's a desire to defy and resist. They may not. They may outwardly comply. But you've triggered something inside that wants to resist and defy, that wants to fight back, right? So when kids do it, what they do is they do it, but they do it late, Right? Or they do it slow, or they do it poorly, or they do it wrong. Uh, and that's that defiant, passive-aggressive, yeah, I'll do it, sure, I'll show you. And, you know, I'm the same way. I do the report. Do I do it the best I can? No. I turn it in late. I make mistakes. I don't give all the information, right? Because I want to defy the rule. I want to defy law. 
So the conclusion of all this, and, and what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7, is the uh, inadequacy, the failure of the law to help us be good. Right? That's what he's saying. He says the law cannot help us to goodness. It cannot lead us to goodness. It cannot make us good. It cannot produce in us holiness. So in the first few verses of chapter 7, he talks about it. its fruit is death. And he confirms it again here. He says it kills you. It makes you a rebel. right? It turns you against God. And it turns you against uh, goodness. Right? That's what it does. But it's not sin. It's just simply a tool in the hands of sin. It is a good gift from God uh, <clears throat> that he has given us. Uh, some people would say, well, if that's all true, then why does God give us commands in the first place? Right? Uh, wouldn't God have been a lot smarter off to just skip the whole command thing and leave us all alone and then we would never be incited to rebellion and we would never, you know, be so bad. So really our sin is God's fault. Well, no. And the truth is uh, that all the law does is reveal what is already true in our heart. Okay? It doesn't make us sin. It doesn't make us defiant. It simply brings to the surface what's true and already there. A lot of people ask, you know, why did God plant the tree in the garden if he was going to tell them not to eat it? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier just not to plant that tree? Right? Why did God do that? Well, the reason God did it is because he knew that in the heart of man there was rebellion. Right? And uh, he put the tree there to bring to the surface the truth about our true character and nature. And it didn't take long, right? Don't eat of the fruit. Where's the first tree they went? Well, I don't know if it was the first tree, but in Genesis, it's the first tree, right? We don't know if they ever even got to eat, taste any of the fruit. Because in the Genesis account, the first place they go is exactly where God told them not to. Right? Well, uh, how can we apply this? Um, and let me, I'm going to give three kind of answers today, if I get that far. I may only make it to the first one, actually. Uh, and we'll pick up some more of this next week of how to apply this. Um, first of all, uh, we use the law to understand God. Okay, there's some people would say, well, if the laws of no good and no value, if it's nothing but trouble for us, let's just rip the Old Testament out and, uh, you know, bury it as a curse and ignore it. Well, that would be foolish and would, would, would really rob us of one of God's great gifts. The law reveals God's character and nature. And it has tremendous value in understanding who God is and what it means for a person to be fit and worthy to worship Him. We ought to be diligent students of the Old Testament, of the law. Right? But we don't study it with an eye to obey it or follow it as they did in the Old Testament, as the Jews would have. Right? For us, it cannot have that function or purpose. Paul says you are no longer under the law. Right? So we don't go to the Old Testament law to find out how to live life. Uh, we can gain from it general principles, and in our life of obedience, God may use those things. But, but here's an example. The Old Testament has a lot of laws and regulations about keeping the Sabbath. Right? I can guarantee you we've all already broken the Sabbath just getting here. And, of course, it's not even the Sabbath. 
It was yesterday, right? Uh, we're worshiping on the wrong day. We drove too far. We're wearing the wrong kind of clothes. We didn't offer sacrifices. There was no blood. I mean, we've just blown it everywhere, right? If we were to follow the law, okay, we'd do church a lot differently. Right? Uh, but certainly it teaches us about the principles of rest and boundaries and uh, a lot of important lessons, right? Uh, God calls us to obedience through the Spirit. He will speak to us about what it means for us individually and personally to live Sabbath principles, but it's not law anymore. It will be the leading and directing of the Holy Spirit who will communicate to us how we obediently follow these principles in our life. They cannot be specific details. Um, Along lines with that, uh, he says clearly, he says, uh, the value of the law is that it teaches us about sin. Um, so so the, the, the principle is here, or the question really, is um, does the law have value as an agent to, in the lives of unbelievers to bring out sin? And I think it does, right? Now, of course, Paul's talking here about the law of Moses. But larger principle is all moral codes really are anchored in, in the ethics uh, of the Bible. In fact, I would say that any true ethic, you know, follows God's righteous law and standard. So all law, in some sense, is a reflection of God's goodness, righteousness, and, and moral purity. Uh, so, so the question is, uh, should we as Christians be imposing our moral views, our moral standards on the world around us? Are we, are we going to bless the world by saying, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, and let me explain why. Okay? God's law says, da-da-da-da, here's the Ten Commandments. Right? Uh, in the West, if you're from places like America, where this is quite a popular approach, um, we do this often. We want to put the Ten Commandments on in courtrooms, Right? We want to put it in front of people's face. You're a bad person, and here's why, right? Most recently, the whole uh, gay marriage debate has really fueled this, right? And the church feels like we need to respond to this immoral behavior by society by putting it back in their face. You're a sinner. You know, this is against God's rules, right? And that's working really well right now, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, right? But what is the church supposed to respond? Are we supposed to say, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want, right? We do have a code. We do have morality. So how do we deal with this, right? Well, I would, I would say this. The law does have value in exposing sin and highlighting people's sinfulness and their wickedness against God. And there is a place for that. It worked well for the Puritans, back in the 1700s. And it actually fueled some of the greatest revivals in America, Scotland, Europe, uh, when great preachers got up and preached hellfire and brimstone and said, you're all sinners. This is what God's Word says, and you're breaking it. You're violating God's law. You need to get your life right. And thousands, tens of thousands of people responded to great powerful preaching, were struck with fear that, yeah, I am not following God's commands. I am sinful, right? However, that worked as well as it worked for the Puritans. 
It will not work today in the modern Western world. Okay, and here's why. Before the command can have effect, you have to acknowledge the command giver. Okay, you have to acknowledge that the command came from a creator God who has right to rule, who owns the universe, who owns our life, and to whom we must give an account. All right. The reason the Jews got the law was because they got God first. They showed up at Mount Sinai, and the fire comes down on the mountain, and the ground shakes, and God speaks to them. Big, powerful words. And what happened? They all freaked out. They all said, Moses, don't let him talk to us. He'll kill us, right? And they were terrified. And and Moses said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to God for you. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives the commands because they knew there was an almighty, powerful creator God. And they didn't want to get on the wrong side of him wisely. Well, they said that. Actually, as it turns out, they got on the wrong side of him all the time. But they wanted to get on the right side of him. And they recognized they were in trouble because this God was powerful, mighty, creator. Right? Uh, here's the deal. In the Western church, the Western world, Western society, if we're waging a, a, a battle against morality, we are, raging the, we are waging the wrong war. Because until people acknowledge as a creator God, our morality is just human. It's just our group of rules versus their group of rules. And, and honestly, why should they choose our group of rules over theirs if there's nothing more than just people? Right? If they don't acknowledge God, why aren't their rules any better than ours? Right? And I think the church has made a huge mistake in that we have got caught into the battle for morality instead of waging the battle for the existence of God. Right? We've let science and modernism and naturalism tell us God does not exist. And we've, we've stuffed God in the corner of the church, and we have stopped proclaiming boldly, there's a God who created everything. And we have failed to wage that war in, 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 in the fields of science, in the fields of math, right? Until we win that war, we have no morality to, to point at them, right? We cannot impose on them the morality and standards of the church. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have those. You know, I'm not saying as a church we should say that yeah, we'll marry gay people. Like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. My morality won't allow that. But until we establish there's a creator God who gives the law... Until people will acknowledge that, we cannot ever expect them to understand its sin by just waving our rules in their face. Right? Uh, it's kind of a sideline, not really the main point of the passage, uh, but I think it speaks. Uh, people need to know they are sinners. They will know it through the law, but they will never know the law until they see the lawgiver. Right? Um, well, there's more we can apply, and we'll, we'll do that next week. Uh, let's pray. Father, we just uh, um, really do ask and pray that you give us greater clarity. Um, it can be so confusing to understand laws and rules, morality, our own spiritual life, uh, what it means to be obedient. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to... to as Paul did, think, think carefully about 
what you are teaching, what your word says. That the law served a great purpose, but its purpose is finished. Uh, And one of its great purposes was, was to show us how desperately we need grace. That we can never hope to have life by being good through the law. Uh, we need a Savior. And Lord, for those of us who do understand as a Creator, for those of us who do know that You have given Your law and we have failed it terribly, Lord, may it be a call to us to remind us we need grace. We need a rescuer. We need a Savior. Lord, may it daily call us not to legalism, but to humility, to be those who seek Your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.